This question comes to us from Tracy. How healthy is a raw, all-vegan diet? This question comes up a lot. The fundamental question, when you cook food, does that somehow diminish the nutritional value? And or if you eat just raw food, are you missing out on certain things? And it's very interesting that that both are true, actually. And welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for giving the show a listen, or a view, or a download, wherever it is in the world that you are. We appreciate the fact that you are here. And you are here for a big, old, jam-packed, chalk-to-the-brim, plate full of information, information overload, sure to raise your nutrition and health IQ by at least two points kind of show. Indeed, it is a big show because we have doctors Neil Barnard and Jim Loomis doing a big, big doctor's mailbag segment answering all kinds of questions about vegan diets, shattering myths, delivering the truth, and answering your questions. All kinds of great questions too. Questions about seaweed and iodine and should we be worried about metal contamination and then fasting if you're diabetic and air quality and COVID-19 Iron absorption, when it comes to coffee and tea, we're bouncing all over the place. That's really just the start of it. But before we get to the Q&A, I want to bring you up to speed on something that is happening in the Midwest right now. And it's something that actually could affect your grocery store, your options in the grocery store. A vegan food company is suing the state of Oklahoma over what it calls unfair food labeling laws. In a lawsuit, Chicago-based Upton's Naturals claims that the Oklahoma Meat Consumer Protection Act is unconstitutional and would have a devastating impact on plant-based companies. Under terms of the bill, which is set to become law in November, packaging for meat alternatives must contain a disclaimer that the food is sourced from plants. Now here's the thing, this disclaimer has to be as large, if not larger, than the actual product name. So imagine that, you go to pick up a product and the disclaimer is bigger than the food logo and name itself. But that is exactly what this law says. So the lawsuit is in place aiming to stop what they call the Oklahoma Meat Consumer Protection Act. Now, Plant-Based Foods Association Executive Director Michelle Simon says that it is highly likely that this law would force some companies to pull their products off of store shelves. Interesting, this battle. Very interesting. Time now to open up the doctor's mailbag. And doctors Jim Loomis and Neil Barnard joined me recently on the exam room live to field questions for well over a half an hour. And we tapped right into that information resource. We're talking about unbelievable amounts of knowledge that came pouring out for that time. So we talked about some of the questions that will be answered. But what about other questions like choline and where can you get that on a plant-based diet? And how healthy is an all-raw plant-based diet? We're going to find that out too. And if you are indeed eating a whole food plant-based diet, what type of blood tests should you be getting from your doctor 
Well, we're going to find all of that out and a whole lot more. So what you just heard, again, just the tip of the iceberg. Let's open up the doctor's mailbag right now and get you some answers. Answering those questions for us today are Drs. Neil Barnard and Dr. Jim Loomis. Dr. Barnard, we are going to start with you. Iodine has been just a, a really heavy topic here on the show recently. And this is a question from Michael. It comes to us on YouTube. He writes, seaweed has been recommended as a good source of iodine, but I'm concerned about the levels of heavy metal contamination. Should I be worried? Ah, great question. Um, yeah, you should be worried about a couple of things. One is not getting enough iodine, and that's where sea vegetables are really helpful. Um, the reason that's an issue is iodized salt has been one of the big sources back since it was introduced in 1924. And nowadays, there's been a turn towards sea salt and Himalayan salt and kosher salt that may not be iodized. So a, a number of people are not getting enough. And if you're not getting enough iodine, what happens? You end up hypothyroid. Uh, so we're, see, we're starting to see more and more of that. Um, so you want to make sure you get enough iodine. Sea vegetables are a great source. But you also do want to be worried about having it be clean. And you're at your question about heavy metals. Uh, most of the seaweeds that you're going to get in restaurants are fine. The nori that's around your cucumber roll, that, that's the one they wrap up sushi in. Your cucumber roll, your asparagus roll, sweet potato roll, the nori's fine. The wakame in your uh, miso soup, also fine. The arame that is used in some uh, salads, a very fine seaweed, also fine. The two I would look out for, one is hijiki, H-I-J-I-K-I. Hijiki does have traces of arsenic in it um, sometimes, and I would just avoid it. Uh, also, kelp, commonly used in seaweed salads, um, doesn't seem to be the arsenic problem, but its iodine level is actually a bit too high. So that once in a while is okay, but if you're doing... Uh, that every day you're going to get too much iodine and that can be a problem too. Dr. Loomis, this next one comes to you. I know that you're familiar with fasting. So this is from Instagram. This viewer wants to know, can you please discuss long-term fasting, talking about 24 to 48 hours and how to break that fast if you are a type two diabetic and is it safe to take medication while fasting? So that's a great question. Um, and um, there's been a lot of discussion about the health benefits and the risks of intermittent fasting um, here recently. Um, there does seem to be uh, some health benefits related to, um, uh, to intermittent fasting. And, and oftentimes what we call intermittent fasting, not, not the prolonged fast that you're talking about, which we'll talk about in a second, but oftentimes what we're really referring to is time-restricted eating. Um, and, and you could imagine that from an evolutionary standpoint, you know, we have a lot of we, we evolved a lot of mechanisms to not starve to death, right? But we have little, very little protection against the other end of, of, of malnutrition, which is overnutrition. So you can imagine that when you start to starve, I mean, the original fasting was starvation, right? You couldn't find enough food. And, and when you, as, as you start to move into a calorie deprived situation because you can't find food, you can imagine that if somehow uh, the mere act of fasting could boost your immune system, you know, to keep you alive to that, to that, to that next uh, meal, um, that would make sense. And, and indeed, that is uh, indeed what seems to happen. There's a lot of research done 
by a researcher named Walter Longo at, uh, I think he's at UCLA, um, which has shown that uh, some of the health benefits of intermittent fasting. And in particular in type 2 diabetics, it does seem to increase insulin sensitivity and things like that. Um, there's, a, there's a few different strategies that people use. One of the more common ones, again, this is more time-restricted eating, and it's a 16-8 strategy where you, 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 you don't take any caloric, uh, any calories in besides, say, um, between for, for, for uh, you take all of your calories in an eight hour window and restrict your caloric intake for 16 hours. So a common strategy is um, uh, don't eat anything between say uh, 8 PM and noon the next day. Now you can have non It is important to stay hydrated. So you can't have like water and black coffee and green tea and things like that, but nothing with calories. You don't restrict your calories, but you take them all in in that eight-hour window from 12 to 8 p.m. There is some evidence in diabetics that the window, moving the window uh, earlier so that your your feeding window is, say, between nine and five or somewhere in there, that is a little more, it is, may have some extra benefit for a diabetic. That's a little more difficult to navigate from a social standpoint because, you you know, you, um, that's really early for many people to eat dinner. Um Another strategy people use does do use is what's called a five two strategy, where you you um, for twice a week you do a twenty four hour water fast or, or no calories. You, again, you can have uh, non caloric beverages like tea and coffee and things like that. It is very important to stay hydrated. Um, now, if you have a chronic disease like type two diabetes or type one diabetes or high blood pressure, and you're on medications. Uh, you do need to be very careful because um, um, some medications we commonly use to treat type 2 diabetes or especially type 1 diabetes, insulin, for example, the sulfonylureas, which is like glipiride and glucotrol, things like that, do have a hypoglycemic effect. And so oftentimes uh, your blood sugars will drop very rapidly. Medications like metformin don't do that. So it's okay to continue the medications, but certainly you want to check with your, with your endocrinologist or primary care provider and let kind of let them know what you're doing so they can advise you on what to do with medication doses. Same with, with high blood pressure. Sometimes you'll see pretty rapid fall in blood pressure. And if you're on a lot of blood pressure pills, you don't want to get hypo, um, you don't want to get hypotensive. Um, more prolonged fasting, you know, 48 hours, 72 hours, you know, week, um, there may be some health benefit to that, but that should be done in a medically supervised uh, uh, setting because there are issues with electrolyte imbalances and again, dehydration and such as that. So, you know, a 24 hour, maybe a 48 hour fast is if you wanted to try that is probably okay. If you have a chronic medical condition, you need to, you need to uh, uh, do that in concert with your, with your provider. Uh, anything beyond that really needs to be in a, in a medically supervised uh, setting. Dr. Barnard, coming to you for this next one. Really, really good question. And uh, I'm, I'm glad that it's being asked because we have so many viewers in California. This one is from Natalie on Facebook. She wants to know, how do you think the poor air quality caused by the wildfires is impacting COVID numbers in California, if at all? Well, it, great point. Uh, COVID is a respiratory virus. So the way you uh, are infected by it, by it is that you inhale it, it goes into the lungs, goes through the lungs, and anything that damages the lung tissue can make you more susceptible, probably both to uh, catching it, but also from having a bad outcome from it. And we saw this with smokers. Uh, and, and by the way, not just from coronaviruses, but from other viruses. Uh, smokers are really set up for them. And now if you're in California and you're going outside, sort of everybody is a smoker all of a sudden. Uh, and I have to say, wearing a mask or a kerchief around your face is not really going to do it. Um, for now, when the air quality is really poor, we just really need good 
ventilation and good filter systems, uh, meaning staying staying inside as much as as we can, because yes, it's going to very likely increase um, the risk. All right. Uh, sticking with you here, Dr. Barnard, an interesting question from uh, Jaina here at 11.52. She got in early. She writes, I need to gain weight. Should I still keep my diet low fat or are there any healthy ways of gaining weight without going overboard with nuts? Okay. Well, first of all, everybody else who's watching the show is envying you. So <laughs> they all want to lose weight. Um, if, if you want to gain weight, I, I guess I'd say, first of all, a couple of things. The first is, do you really want, do you really need to gain weight? And if you're unsure, Check your body mass index. Your BMI is your weight, but it's adjusted for how tall you are. And go online uh, and put in a BMI calculator. And you enter your height, you enter your weight. You'll see one of these at the PCRM.org site as well. And if your body mass index is between 18.5 and 25, you don't need to gain weight. If you're below 18.5, then you probably do want to gain some weight. Uh, but if you're in that middle range and the only reason that you want to gain weight is because your overweight friends are all uh, bugging you and they think that you ought to get be uh, in the same weight category as them, ignore them. Um, if your BMI is in that range, you're perfectly fine. Now, okay, so that said, if you really are underweight, we do want to have a look at what is the reason for it. Um, for most people, your BMI is not going to be really low unless there's either a medical issue or you're just not eating adequate food. Uh, but assuming that you've seen your medical caregiver and you've ruled out other issues, uh, eating more food in general is the way to go. You don't need, it is true that if you eat a lot more fatty foods, nuts, peanut butter, that kind of thing, um, you will gain more weight than if you're sticking with low fat foods. Uh, fatty foods have just more calories per gram, so you, you gain weight. It may not go where you want it. In other words, you might gain weight, but it's all around your belly, and that may not may not be where you want to be. So make sure that your um, BMI really is where uh, uh, in in the right range. Um, if it is low, you can gain weight, but do it by eating food, not necessarily by eating a lot of fat. Dr. Loomis, coming to you, you mentioned coffee and tea uh, in your last answer. So this is a follow-up here from Catherine at 1206. She wants to know, how do coffee and tea affect iron absorption? you have any familiarity there? Yeah, there is some evidence that uh, some of the compounds in, in tea and coffee may affect um, um, iron absorption. Um, but, but it's mainly, um, most of that research is done in people taking iron supplements. Um, I, I don't know of a lot of research around uh, that. The, so, so just to back up for a second, uh, when we talk about iron in the diet, there's really two, sort, two main sources of iron. Most people who eat meat on an omnivorous diet, uh, they get their iron uh, through what's called heme iron. So that's iron bound to hemoglobin. And um, hemoglobin is actually the protein in our blood that carries oxygen and makes our blood red. So basically what you're doing is you're consuming that dead animal's blood, which is really disgusting if you think about that, at least when I kind of realized that, I'm like, look, that's nasty. Um, so it, it's, it's very easy to, it's fairly easy for our bodies to absorb heme iron. There are some compounds that can inhibit that. There, some of the compounds in tea and coffee, um, in, and, and I think taking with calcium, there's some other things that can in, impair uh, uh, absorption. Now, there is iron in plants, uh, but it's not bound to hemoglobin. Um, it's, so that's called non-heme iron. And non-heme iron, um, um, 
is more difficult for our bodies to absorb. However, if you co-ingest a, a source of vitamin C with the non-heme iron, actually you'll see absorption rates uh, that equal, if not exceed the heme iron um, uh, concentrations. What's also interesting is our bodies will absorb as much heme iron as we give it. Uh, we can't, we can't, it, we don't really eliminate extra iron and it actually can build up in your liver. It's also a very potent uh, pro-oxidant. It's highly inflammatory. There's an association with too much iron intake and things like liver problems, especially if you have a genetic condition called hemochromatosis, but also can increase your risk for things like, uh, uh, may increase risk for things like type two diabetes and, and, um, um, uh, certain colon cancer, heart disease, things like that. So the iron that's in in plants, which is uh, you, you can find high levels of iron in things like green leafy vegetables and and beans and lentils, uh, legumes, or some of the molasses. Um, it is more difficult, as I said, for our bodies to absorb it. However, if you co-ingest a source of vitamin C with that non-heme iron, you'll see absorption levels that, that equal or even exceed the, the non, uh, that of heme iron. And probably just as important, our body will self-regulate. When we become iron replete, uh, it will stop absorbing the, the extra non-heme iron. So we kind of auto-regulate our iron stores. Um, so, so again, you know, the idea would be to take some lemon juice and put it in your salad dressing and your green leafy vegetables or squeeze it on the salad, finish a soup of bean soup or lentil soup with a little lemon or lime juice, uh, like red bell peppers have a tremendous amount of vitamin C. So put those in your beans and rice, um, you know, snack on citrus fruits, things like that. And that way you'll ensure that you're getting plenty of iron, but most important for premenopausal women. Okay, Dr. Barnard, this next one is for you. Comes to us from Liz at 1206. Wants to know, do we need choline and where can we get it on a plant-based diet? Um, Not to worry. Um, There are plenty of sources of it. Um, You will hear uh, sometimes uh, omnivorous diet advocates uh, talking about getting choline from animal sources. You don't need that. Um, As long as your diet has vegetables, fruits, whole grains, and beans, you'll get what you need. By the way, that doesn't mean... Uh, that you don't also need other supplements. You don't need to be supplementing choline, but you do need to supplement B12. Good to know. All right. Next question comes to us from, let's see, Kathy's been waiting in the queue. Uh, Dr. Barnard, we'll stick with you. How do you stop blood sugar from rising when you sleep? That one is from 1145. Okay. Um, this, this is a, a peculiar thing that you might've noticed. If you have diabetes, uh, let's say you woke up 530 in the morning and you checked your blood sugar, and then you went back to sleep, and you checked it a couple hours later, and you're discovering your blood sugar is higher. How can that be? It's often called the dawn phenomenon, and there are other related phenomena as well. Um, It's not that you were sleepwalking and you had breakfast uh, and forgot, um, but your blood sugar did actually rise, and the reason it did it is that your liver is awake while you are asleep. It's monitoring your blood sugar, and when your blood sugar dips a little bit low, your liver will release some glucose into the blood. That's an automatic uh, reaction in your body and happens, happens normally. So the, the way that you want to control your blood sugar, though, is with a low-fat, completely plant-based diet, a vegan diet, uh, because what that does is that allows your muscle and liver cells to become less insulin-resistant, more insulin-sensitive. And uh, if you do that, then they are able to pull the, sh- the excess sugar out of your blood in an efficient way. All right. Dr. Loomis, coming back to you now. This question comes to us from Tracy at 1215. How healthy is a raw, all-vegan diet? So, you know, um, this question comes up a lot. Thanks for asking it. And, and so that is the, the fundamental question 
um, does cooking, you know, when you cook food, uh, does that somehow diminish the, the uh, nutritional value and or um, if you eat just raw food, are you missing out on certain things? And, and it's very interesting that it, it, it's um, that both are true, actually, um, that some foods, when you cook them, the nutrition, uh, some of the nutritional uh, components, some of the, the nutritional value goes up and some of it goes down. Um, so uh, I think so something like uh, tomatoes are a good example. So when you cook tomatoes, the lycopene content goes up and lycopene is a, is a, is an antioxidant polyphenol that's found in uh, uh, tomatoes, which is, is an anti-inflammatory has been shown to maybe reduce your risk for prostate cancer and things like that. However, the vitamin C uh, content goes down, right? So, so, um, you can you can probably get if you're eating a a, a lot of just eating a, a, a raw food diet. I think that's okay. I think you can get all of your nutrients uh, because there's still some lycopene and and um, um, there's still some lycopene in tomatoes. It's just the levels higher. I mean, personally, what I do is is I mix it up. So I might have some you know cherry tomatoes sliced up raw and put on my on my uh, salad or you know avocado toast or something like that. But then I also cook cook um, uh, tomatoes uh, as well. Same thing with, with broccoli, cruciferous vegetables. So some of the uh, um, beneficial compounds, the levels go up when you cook it, and then we lose some of the nutritional value. So kind of mixing it up where we, uh, where I do some, you know, I'll have broccoli or cauliflower raw, but I also will, will also eat it cooked or, or roasted. So trying to get the best of both worlds. But if you wanted to go on a, just a raw food diet, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. You, you, you know, you just have to be sure you're getting enough calories in a, in a broad range so that you, you are getting all of those micronutrients that you need. As a reminder, if you have a question for Drs. Barnard or Loomis, go ahead and post them in the comments section now or send them to us on social media with the hashtag ExamRoomLive. Going to do our best to get as many questions answered as we possibly can on the show today. Dr. Loomis, coming back to you, this question from Zinda at 1214 wants to know uh, some advice. My LDL is high in the 90s. Should I still eat good fats? I'm a little scared, he says. So, um, you know, the, 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 so LDL, as you, as many people may know, so LDL stands for low density lipoprotein. It's one of, uh, of, of several components of our lipid profile. And we know that high levels of LDL um, increase your risk for heart disease. And if you've already had heart disease, it, you know, it's, it's very, especially it's very important to keep that low. Um, the, the, what constitutes a normal LDL is somewhat controversial. Um, the traditional wisdom is if you, you know that in general it should be less than 100, and if you've had a history of heart disease or a stroke, it should really be less than 75. Um, many uh, practitioners, like Dr. Esselstyn, would argue that everyone's LDL needs to be as low as possible, you know, down below 75. Um, there are many things that influence our LDL levels. Uh, genetics can play a role. There's a fairly common condition called familial hypercholesterolemia that no matter what you do, your cholesterol is going to stay high. Um, but, but we also know that, the, that uh, too much fat in our diet uh, can raise LDL. We know that, that dietary cholesterol, like from eggs, can raise LDL. We know that diets that are low in, in fat and, um, I mean, low in fiber. Um, the average American gets, what, 10, 15, 20 grams of fiber a day. We really need to be 40, 50, 60, even 100 grams of fiber a day. Um, um, so, but it's not just the LDL. I mean, we also look at the, at the, the whole picture, right? So do you exercise? Are you overweight? Do you have a normal, you know, blood sugar? What's your blood pressure? Uh, what's your family history? 
what other kind of comorbidities do you have? So, you know, for some people, an LDL of, of 90 is, is perfectly fine. Um, you know, getting it a little bit lower may lower your risk, but if you're at low risk anyway, you're probably not going to get a huge bang for your buck. Uh, certainly one wouldn't want to see it a lot higher than that, but, but how aggressive you need to be. I mean, again, in general, when I talk to patients, I don't really focus on LDL number because in an ideal world, I mean, the ankle bone's connected to the knee bone, right? So if everyone ate a low fat, very high fiber, plant food, whole food, plant-based diet, and they exercised and they didn't stress out and they got a good night's sleep, then, then the LDL really becomes a non-issue. Um, my LDL used to be in the, you know, quite high. I'm almost embarrassed to tell you what it was, uh, but, but, you know, north of 150, 160, somewhere in there, uh, within three or four months of going on a whole food plant-based diet, very high fiber, low fat, my LDL dropped into the fifties. Um, and so, so, um, you know, fiber probably being the most important thing, there are a few other things that can raise LDL. So, uh, there is some evidence that, that, uh, like a French press coffee, a non-filtered coffee can raise HLDL a little bit. So if you drink, you know, out of a French press, uh, some of the oils may seem to drive that up. Thyroid too can, uh, thyroid conditions can also raise LDL. So, you know, again, w- without knowing your whole clinical history, I-, I can't give you more specific advice on on that. But, but you know, in an ideal world, it should be a little bit lower. Um, you know, healthy fats, I mean, that's... Um, you know, again, the, the kind of fats you find in a whole food plant-based diet, first of all, a whole food plant-based diet is only about 10% fat. And that's, it's mainly unsaturated fat. There's a little bit of saturated fat in avocados and some nuts, but, but you know, the, you should treat those as condiments anyway. The French press, man, those are so much fun. And now you're telling me they may have this, this adverse effect with cholesterol. I don't want to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not it's not everybody that has that effect and for you know and again oftentimes if you're eating a very you know a whole food plant-based diet it's really not even an issue all right great question here from Kimoy at twelve twenty. uh Kimoy writes i'm a practitioner how can i start to help and treat patients with a vegan lifestyle as a career path so that's a great question and congratulations on you know kind of rethinking what healthcare really means because you know, I, I think unfortunately the way medical practitioners are trained today, a we we get no we get no real meaningful training on nutrition. Uh, my, the little bit of nutrition I had in med school, and I don't think it's changed. Uh, it was really glorified biochemistry. You know, I learned about about carbohydrates and protein and vitamins and minerals, but mainly what happened if I if you didn't get enough of those. By the way, I've never seen a case of scurvy or beriberi or you know, cross your cores with protein deficiency in, in my clinical practice. Um, so, so when we, and we don't learn anything about lifestyle in general. Uh, and so, you know, what that's led to is really the disease of what I've come to consider the diseaseification of our health. We've turned conditions like type two diabetes and high blood pressure and cholesterol into these chronic diseases that we somehow think we can treat and control, but they're not chronic diseases. They are normal physiologic responses to abnormal behaviors, right? So, so really shifting the focus on treating those behaviors, primarily food. So, so, you know, so as a practitioner, how do you educate yourself and then how do you educate your patients and what tools do you need? Um, there are a lot, there are a lot of great resources out there. Probably number one, I would, I would say is to um, 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 look into the Marin College of Lifestyle Medicine. Uh, there has been exponential growth in interest in lifestyle medicine. And one of their tenets is indeed uh, plant-based diets. It's really about finding balance in, in all aspects of lifestyle, stress management, sleep, 
you know, environmental toxins, tobacco, alcohol, uh, social connection, uh, uh, again, plant-based diet and, and exercise. They have a lot of great resources. They actually uh, have a board certification now. Uh, they have a lot of great educational material available. Um, PCRM, we have a lot of information. Um, we have a, a, a great program where you can actually get CMEs as you educate yourself, our nutrition CME program. That's all free. You can go online. Um, you know, there's, um, um, there's a lot of great books. Dr. Greger's book, How Not to Die. We, we actually have a teaching program in our practice where we bring in residents and interns and, and uh, from uh, locally, at, uh, we were on the faculty at GW and I'm on the faculty at uh, the military med school in Bethesda. But we, we take s- students from all over the world. We actually oftentimes will use How Not to Die as almost a textbook because it's all evidence based. Um, um, T. Com Camel Foundation has a plant-based certification, which is is, is science-based, evidence-based. If, if you want to expand your knowledge base, so there's a lot of great resources out there. Um, from a practical standpoint, probably ACLM, um, uh, as far as practice models, is probably your best resource. So if you're not a member of ACLM, I would highly recommend you join. Um, they have a conference coming up in, in next month, uh, I think, um, um, and just a wealth of information. So that's a great resource from a practitioner side to help you understand how to how to uh, flow this information down into your uh, into, into your practice um, um, and, and help educate your patients and educate yourself. Real quick, just want to say hi to a, a man, Wella, who's watching all the way in Romania today. Thank you so much for tuning in. That's awesome. I can't well, recall ever having... Well, as an aside, uh, uh, she's a physician and actually rotated through our uh, through Bernard Medical Center, uh, what, a year or two ago. So uh, she's been a great um, uh, uh, voice for lifestyle medicine in Romania and I think is one of the founding members of the Romanian Lifestyle Medicine uh, Association, if I'm not mistaken. So welcome. It's nice to see you again virtually. Oh, how cool is that? That's yeah. fantastic. All yeah. right. All right. right. So we, we're worldwide, Chuck. We're, we're At- worldwide. I'm telling you. We're, we're, oh, man, it's a it's a vegan global takeover, man. I love this so much. Uh, here is a great question, man. We talk so much, Dr. Loomis, about fiber on the show. And so Tammy here at 1226, phenomenal question. What are the greatest ways to get fiber in high quantity and what is a good daily target for it? So, um, you know, I, I would argue that if you really dig down to, to the problem with the standard American diet, and its effect on our health today, really at a very fundamental level, it's fiber deficiency. Um, fiber does so many healthful things for the human body. You know, it, it lowers cholesterol, it lowers blood pressure, it lowers your risk for many cancers like colon cancer, um, improves blood sugar control, it, it helps us lose weight, maintain a healthy weight, so on and on and on. It also helps maintain a healthy gut microbiome. Uh, we, we're learning more and more that gut microbiome is, um, is, is, plays an incredibly diverse role in our health. And when we get a disrupted gut microbiome, it can affect, you know, weight gain, metabolic diseases, autoimmune diseases, on and on and on. Um, so uh, the average American, as I, I think I said earlier, gets, you know, 10, 15, maybe 20 grams of fiber a day. Um, I think the American Heart Association now recommends, you know, 30, 40 grams of fiber a day. If you look at our ancestral diets and, 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 and you know, communities that have are probably the healthiest, I mean, we're probably talking 50 to 100 grams of fiber a day. And that, that's kind of the range. I, I'm, I, I think the more fiber, the better. Um, and so I think really targeting that 50 to 100 grams, and that's a lot. And now, granted, that is a lot of fiber. 
right? Just don't get me wrong. Um, if, if you're new to fiber, you shouldn't certainly start. If you're eating 15, 20 grams and you eat 50 grams of fiber tomorrow, your gut may not like that too much. Um, that's not a fiber. That's not a bean or lentil or a fiber problem. That's actually a gut microbiome problem because it takes two to four to six weeks to kind of reset your gut microbiome. Um, probably the biggest bang for your buck is, um, is, is legumes. Um, they have a tremendous amount of fiber by volume. Um, and so incorporating, uh, beans and lentils, you know, even if you can do that three meals a day, that's great. Uh, true whole grains have a ton of fiber, um, you know, fruits, fresh fruits and vegetables. So really, again, if you're eating and again, you know, you learn this in kindergarten. And I learned it again in medical school, that the ankle bone is connected to the knee bone. And when we eat a diverse, a whole food plant based diet, which is no animal products and minimally processed food, you really don't have to worry about your fiber intake. Because you're going to get enough fiber when your diet is primarily made up of, of legume, you know, the power plate that we talk about at PCRM and BMC, you know, whole grains, fruits, vegetables, legumes. I mean, you, you can't go wrong. Um, there is a, a great, a relatively new book that's just come out called Fiber Fueled um, uh, by Dr. Will. I will call his last name Dr. B because his last name I can't pronounce. Bolsowitz. Uh, I got you covered. It's Bolsowitz. Yeah, he's been on the show, hasn't he, Chuck? He has. He's a great guy. Yeah, so he's got a new book out called Fiber Fueled. And I think the tagline, actually, I have it sitting right here. The tagline is is um, uh, a plant-based gut health program for losing weight, restoring your health, and optimizing your micro- gut microbiome. And, 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 it's, and, and it's really about fiber. And it, it really teaches you how to, you know, the importance of fiber, but more importantly, how to, how to incorporate fiber into your diet in, in a healthful way. And, and by the way, I'm not talking about fiber supplements. It's very interesting. And this is true pretty much for any supplement. You know, you look at a society that eats a lot of fiber, um, um, colon cancer is almost non-existent. In fact, many of these societies don't have words in their language for, for things like colon cancer because it doesn't exist. You give someone fiber supplements, it, it doesn't really change the risk. Because it's not the fiber per se. It's the food that has a lot of fiber in it because these high fiber foods like beans and lentils and fruits and vegetables are highly anti-inflammatory. They've got lots of phytonutrients and antioxidants, which also in concert with the fiber. T. Colin Campbell talks about the symphony of nutrients in our food. And so it's not about taking, you know, Metamucil um, every day to increase your fiber intake. It's really about using these, these, these incredibly, this, taking advantage of the symphony of nutrients that come in, in nature's bounty and the food that we eat. Man, you're talking about 100 grams of fiber a day. And all I could think about was that old Saturday Night Live commercial for colon blow cereal. Do you remember that? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, all right, time now for uh, one final question. This one comes to us from Danielle. She wants to know this at uh, twelve twenty-five. She writes, "How many grams of fat per day is considered low fat?" So um, I, I don't focus so much on on the, the the number of grams because it depends on how many. It's, it's really a percent of your calories, uh, the percent of your calories, right? That, that come from fat. Because uh, you know, if you're an if you're a marathon runner. Um, um, and you're eating 4,000 calories a day, um, you know, it, it doesn't mean you need to stay on it. So you don't need this. So, so if you're eating 2,000 calories a day, 1,500 calories a day, um, um, then and you're eating 4,000 calories a day, it, it's not the same amount of fat, right? So it's really the percentage of, ca- of calories that come from fat. And um, 
the kind of the natural macronutrient ratios of a whole food plant-based diet are about 75% somewhere in there uh, of, of complex unprocessed carbohydrate. It's about 15% uh, plant-based protein and about 10, 15% uh, 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 fat. So pretty low fat. So that's kind of the, that's kind of where I, I shoot for um, um, in that 10 to 15% range. Um, you know, it's hard to do that if you're eating a lot of processed oils or you're over consuming nuts and, and say avocado, uh, which are fairly high fat foods. It doesn't mean that those those foods are whole food and they don't play a role in a healthy diet. But you do have to be careful um, for people that are really trying to lose weight or trying to lower their cholesterol or get their diabetes under control, which is really comes from you know fat, which gets deposited in muscle and liver cells, which creates the insulin resistance. Sometimes I will have patients kind of spot check this on occasion. It's a tedious process, so it's not something I recommend you do every day. But but using a program like MyFitnessPal or Chronometer, I, I, I happen to like, which is an online program. It's a food tracking app, right? So you have to keep an honest food diary, put it all in, and, and it'll spit out, you know, how many grams of fiber, how many grams of protein, you know, how many grams of fat. Um, it's not something I recommend you do every day, though, because, again, it's very tedious. Um, um, it, the, Chronometer does have a pretty robust recipe Saver, so you can put in a recipe, save it, and next time you have that, you can you can you can um, um, uh, 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 just pull out a serving, and it'll calculate the nutritional value. Um, I usually recommend a spot check, maybe a twenty-four hour, even a forty-eight hour window. Forty-eight hours will allow you to kind of balance things out. If you have an avoc- have some avocado one day and not the next day, it's not going to spike your fat um, uh, intake. And just, you know, just spot checking and seeing, uh, we as human beings are not very good. Our brains did not evolve the capacity to look at a plate of food and decide how healthful it was because we didn't need to, because back in a gather hunter society, almost everything we ate was healthful. And so our brains didn't evolve a lot of capacity. And so it's pretty amazing when I've done this exercise in the past and I still do it on occasion, I'm pretty usually pretty shocked at how the mismatch between how healthful I think the food is I'm eating and how healthful it really is. So using that as a learning tool to kind of figure out where the holes are in your diet, whether it be fiber or protein or, or, or um, uh, fat. Um, I, I think it is a useful tool on occasion um, uh, to, to kind of, as you're, especially as you're moving through the process of adapting a whole food plant-based diet. You know what amazes me, and I was helping my wife out. She she heads uh, the media relations for a local police department here in the Washington D.C. area, and she started something called Fit Fridays, where on social media they put out a fitness or a health tip, you know, for the community. And she was uh, asking for a good tip today, uh, asking specifically about fruits and vegetables. And I had forgotten that only one out of ten Americans is getting enough fruits and vegetables in their day. And you were talking earlier about how essential fiber is, like that is the nutrient of focus, you know. And, and so, if you only have one out of ten Americans who are eating enough fruits and vegetables, we're going to be woefully lacking in the fiber category as well. That's exactly right. And you know, and again, it's a symphony. I mean, you think about it, right? You go to a typical fast food restaurant or even a school cafeteria, work cafeteria, what's the primary color that you see on the plate, right? Well, it's brown, right? It's a hamburger, chicken breast, uh, you know, French fries, tater tots, you know, whatever. When, when the only color on the plate is some kind of plastic yellow fake cheese and maybe a piece of limp lettuce, I can guarantee you that, you know, there's no fiber in any of that food nor are there any antioxidants and phytonutrients which are going to you know, help you maintain good health. You know, in general, a standard American diet is highly inflammatory. And, and, and so the more color your food has, 
the more fiber it has, the more antioxidants it has, so, you know, the more phytonutrients. So it really is about eating the rainbow. Um, and what's interesting is about legumes in particular, which is something people don't realize. Most people, when you think about, you know, an antioxidant, anti-inflammatory foods, they talk about things like blueberries and raspberries, you know, things that are highly colored, which, which is true. Those, those are very potent antioxidants. But the most potent antioxidants out there are beans and are, are dark colored beans. So if you cut a bean in half, a cooked bean in half, what color is it in the middle, right? It's kind of a creamy white. It's the pigments, the incanthocyanes, which are the pigments in the, in, the, in the skin of the bean, which are highly, highly antioxidant. So not only do you get the fiber from the beans and lentils, you know, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a highly antioxidant, anti-inflammatory food. So beans and lentils should be an essential part of everyone's diet, um, uh, not only for the fiber, but because, again, it's a highly anti-inflammatory, antioxidant food. So help me, Hannah. Every time you are on the show, Dr. Loomis, school is in session. I love it. Thank you so much for joining us, my friend. Thanks for having me. We would love to have you join us for the exam room live every Monday through Friday at noon Eastern over on Facebook and on YouTube. We do five shows a week because we do not want to wait to get the latest health and nutrition information out to you. We want to make sure that you get that as quickly as you possibly can so you can be as healthy as you possibly can. That is why we do the show five days a week, Monday through Friday noon eastern over on the physicians committee's facebook page and youtube channel and that also happens to be the best way to go ahead and get your question answered by any one of our experts whether it's dr loomis or dr barnard or any one of our dietitians or outside experts who join us on the show like dr michael greger or dr kim williams always so many wonderful intelligent voices who are so gracious to lend their time to us on the exam room live. And by the way, if you're on the East Coast, it's a great way to spend your lunch hour. If you're on the West Coast, it's a phenomenal time to have breakfast with us, breakfast and learn. And then if you're anywhere else in the world, just join us. I don't know what time of day it is, but we would love to have you there. We've had people from all over the world join us recently. We've had people from Japan and Australia, Italy, Romania, all over the UK, so many different places throughout the world. Canada, our, our wonderful neighbors to the north, just so many wonderful people who have really taken the time to tune in and enjoy the show and, and help to raise their own health IQ. Within just a few months of the show, being launched, we already had a million and a half viewers. And that is the greatest feeling in the world to know that we really are helping to make this world a little bit healthier of a place. So come on, get enlightened, get inspired, get your questions answered, and join us for the exam room live every Monday through Friday at noon Eastern. A link to the Physicians Committee's Facebook page and YouTube channel can be found in the episode notes. Now, here on this podcast, the very podcast that you're listening to right here, the last episode, I had the opportunity to speak with Richard Hubbard. He has another phenomenal weight loss story. And I was thinking about him over the weekend and the conversation that we had. And Richard is training for the New York City Marathon, had just lost 150 pounds. Actually, he's had the weight off for, for some time now, but he's really dedicated himself to running. And that kind of 
motivated me. It had been quite some time since I had laced up the old sneakers to go for a run. I'm typically the walking kind of a guy. Um, But I was like, you know what? I'm feeling good. Let's go for a run. And it had been a long time since I had done this. And I wasn't really thrilled with my time. You know, I I ran about two and a quarter miles. I took a look at the time. I was like, "Ah, gosh, I used to be so much faster. But then... I kind of thought back to the conversation that that Richard and I had and how I used to feel way back when I was still overweight and I couldn't walk 10 feet, walk 10 feet, let alone run more than two miles. And that really kind of helped to put things into perspective. And that is, you know what? You got to be kind to yourself. If you if you let these negative thoughts creep into your head, doesn't that open the door a little bit for those bad habits to also creep back in? Because you kind of want to comfort that with your warm blanket. And in a lot of cases, that warm blanket can be food. For me, it was obviously fast food. But no, I thought to myself... Two, two and a quarter miles, that's not bad. Forget the fact that each mile was about a minute slower than it used to run, but that's okay. Because you just ran two and a quarter miles without even stopping. That's awesome. Obviously, you can go further over time, just work your way back up. But even now... I'm looking off to my left and the door is about 10 feet away. Just knowing there was a time when I could barely walk from here to there. And I'm thinking, why, why am I not running faster with two and a quarter miles? And it's like, come on, man, snap out of it. You're doing so much better. Just keep it up. Just keep it up. And that is the power of change, my friends. So keep that in mind whenever it is that you go through your transformations. Just remember to be kind to yourself and trust that you are going to be okay because you are now living a healthier lifestyle. Speaking of healthier lifestyles, I wanted to share this really quickly with you before we wrap things up as well. There's a new list of the best cities to live in if you are vegan. And congratulations, Houston, Texas. You, my friend, if you live there, are in the best city in America when it comes to being a vegan. Indeed, Houston takes the plant-based cake. The city is receiving high marks for the number of vegan restaurants and takeout spots, as well as the surprising number of plant-based cooking classes that are offered. The cool thing is, also according to this survey, the cost of preparing a meal at home, also not all that terribly bad when compared to other cities that were ranked. Now, the other cities that were in the top five, as ranked by online lending broker money.co.uk, Denver came in second, followed by LA, Dallas, and Chicago, and New York ranked seventh. So look at that, two cities in Texas taken in the top five. Barbecue Crazy Texas has two of the best cities for vegans. I love this. I love the fact that the tide is turning. So how how are things by you 
right? How does your city fare? I'm curious to know. Hit me up on Facebook or send me a tweet at Chuck Carroll WLC. Let me know. What's it like to be vegan in your city? Do you have a, a lot of options there? Also, scroll on down to the episode notes and you will find a link to the very rankings that we were just discussing. I think there are 20 some odd cities that were ranked and also maybe yours cracked a list. We'll find out. But for today, that's going to wrap things up. My thanks again to Drs. Neil Barnard and Jim Loomis for enlightening us with their time. And on behalf of everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, stay safe, take a stand, and keep it plant-based.